Part fourteen of a journal of impressions in Belgium by May Sinclair. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Expatriate in Bangor, Maine. Part fourteen. Finally, we left the British lines and set out towards Mele by a cross road. We got through all right. A thousand accidents may delay his going, but once off, no barriers exist for the commandant. Seated in the front of the car, utterly unperturbed by the chauffeur Tom's sarcastic comments on men, things, and women, wrapped apparently in a beautiful dream, he looks straight ahead with eyes whose vagueness veils a deadly simplicity of purpose. I marvel at the transfiguration of the commandant. Before the war he was a fairly complex personality. Now he has ceased to exist as a separate individual. He is merged vaguely and vastly in his adventure. He is the motor ambulance field corps. He is the ambulance car. He is the electric spark and the continuous explosion that drives the thing along. It is useless to talk to him about anything that happened before the war or about anything that exists outside it. He would not admit that anything did exist outside it. He is capable of forgetting the day of the week and the precise number of female units in his company and the amount standing to his credit at his banker's but once off he is cocksure of the shortest cut to the firing line within a radius of fifty kilometres some of us who have never seen a human phenomenon of this sort are ready to deny him an identity they complain of his inveterate and deplorable lack of any sense of detail this is absurd you might as well insist on a faithful representation of the household furniture of the burgomaster of zuteneg which is the smallest village in belgium in drawing the map of Europe to scale. At the critical moment, this more than continental vastness gathers to a wedge-like determination that goes home. He means to get through. We ran into Mele about an hour before sunset. There had been a great slaughter of Germans on the field outside the village, where the Germans were still firing when the corps left it. We found two of our cars drawn up by the side of the village street, close under the houses, the chaplain, Ursula Diermer and Mrs. Lambert, were waiting in one of them, the new Daimler, with the chauffeur Newlands. Dr. Wilson was in Bert's car with three wounded Germans. He was sitting in front with one of them beside him. They say that the enemy's wounded sometimes fire on our surgeons and Red Cross men, and Dr. Wilson had a revolver about him when he went on the battlefield yesterday. He said he wasn't taking any risks. The man he had got beside him today was only wounded in the foot, and had his hands entirely free to do what he liked with. He looked rather a low type, and at the first sight of him I thought I shouldn't have cared to be alone with him anywhere on a dark night. And then I saw the look on his face. He was purely pathetic. He didn't look at you. He stared in front of him down the road towards Ghent, in a dull, helpless misery. These unhappy German Tommies are afraid of us. They are told that we shall treat them badly, and some of them believe it. I wanted Dr. Wilson to let me get up and go with the poor fellow, but he wouldn't. He was sorry for him, and very gentle. He is always sorry for people, and very gentle. So I knew that the German would be all right with him, but I should have liked to have gone. We found Mrs. Torrance and Janet, with Monsieur Blank on the other side of the street, left behind by Dr. Wilson. They had been working all day yesterday and half the night and all this morning and afternoon on that hideous turnip field. 
they have seen things and combinations of things that no forewarning imagination could have devised last night the car was fired on where it stood waiting for them in the village and they had to race back to it under a shower of bullets they were as fresh as paint and very cheerful mrs torrance was wearing a large silver order on a broad blue ribbon pinned to her khaki overcoat it was given to her to-day as the reward of valour by the belgian general in command here somebody took it from the breast of a prussian officer she had covered it up with her khaki scarf so that she might not seem to swank little janet was with her she always is with her she looked younger than ever more impassive than ever more adorable than ever i have got used to mrs torrance and to ursula dearmer but i cannot get used to janet it always seems appalling to me that she should be here strolling about the seat of war with her hands in her pockets as if a battle were a cricket match at which you looked on between your innings and yet there isn't a man in the corps who does his work better and with more courage and endurance than this eighteen-year-old child they told us that there were no french or belgian wounded left but that two wounded germans were still lying over there among the turnips they were waiting for our car to come out and take these men up the car was now drawn up close under some building that looked like a town hall on the other side of the street we were in the middle of the village the village itself was the extreme fringe of the danger zone where the houses ended a stretch of white road ran for about a hundred yards to the turnip field standing in the village street we could see the turnip field but not all of it the road goes straight up to the edge of it and turns there with a sweep to the left and runs alongside for about a mile and a half on the other side of the turnip field were the german lines the first that had raked the village street also raked the fields in the mile and a half of road alongside it was along that road that the car would have to go monsieur blank told our ambulance that it might as well go back there were no more wounded only two germans lying in a turnip field the three of us mrs torrance and janet and i tried to bring pressure to bear on monsieur blank we meant to go and get those germans but monsieur blank was impervious to pressure he refused either to go with the car himself or to let us go he said we were too late and it was too far and there wouldn't be light enough he said that for two belgians or two french or two british it would be worth while taking risks but for two germans under german fire it wasn't good enough but mrs torrance and janet and i didn't agree with him wounded were wounded we said we were going if he wasn't then the chauffeur tom joined in he refused to offer his car as a target for the enemy footnote this is no reflection on tom's courage his chief objection was to driving three women so near the german lines the same consideration probably weighed with the commandant and monsieur blank our firm belgian was equally determined the commandant as if roused from his beautiful dream to a sudden realization of the horrors of war absolutely forbade the expedition it took place all the same tom's car planted there on our side of the street hugging the wall with its hood over its eyes preserved its attitude of obstinate immobility newland's car hugging the wall on the other side of the street stood discreetly apart from the discussion but a belgian military ambulance car ran up smaller and more alert than ours and a belgian army medical officer strolled up to see what was happening we three advanced on that army medical officer 
mrs torrance and janet on his left and i on his right i shall always be grateful to that righteous man he gave mrs torrance and janet leave to go and he gave me leave to go with them he gave us the military ambulance to go in and a belgian soldier with a rifle to protect us and he didn't waste a second over it he just looked at us and smiled and let us go mrs torrance got on to the ambulance beside the driver janet jumped on to one step and i on to the other while the commandant came up trying to look stern and told me to get down i hung on all the tighter and then what happened then was so ignominious so sickening that if i were not sworn to the utmost possible realism in this record i should suppress it in the interests of human dignity mrs torrance having the advantage of me in weight height muscle and position got up and tried to push me off the step as she did this she said you can't come you'll take up the place of a wounded man and i found myself standing in the village street while the car rushed out of it with janet clinging on to the hood like a little sailor to his shrouds she was on the side next the german guns it was the most revolting thing that had happened to me yet in a life filled with incidents that i have no desire to repeat and it made me turn on the commandant in a way that i do not like to think of i believe i asked him how he could bear to let that kid go into the german lines which was exactly what the poor man hadn't done footnote the whole thing was a piece of rank insubordination the commandant was entirely right to forbid the expedition and we were entirely wrong in disobeying him but it was one of those wrong things that i would do again tomorrow. then we waited mrs lambert and i in tom's car and the commandant in the car with ursula dearmer and the chaplain on the other side of the street we were dreadfully silent now we stared at objects that had no earthly interest for us as if our lives depended on mastering their detail we were thus aware of a beautiful little belgian house standing back from the village street down a short turning a cream-coloured house with green shutters and a roof of rose-red tiles and a very small poplar tree mounting guard beside it this house and its tree were vivid and very still they stood back in an atmosphere of their own an atmosphere of perfect but utterly unreal peace and as long as our memories endure that house which we never saw before and shall probably never see again is bound up with the fate of mrs torrance and janet mcneil we thought we should have an hour to wait before they came back if they ever did come we waited for them during a whole dreadful lifetime in something less than half an hour the military ambulance came swinging round the turn of the road with mrs torrance and the kid and the two german wounded with them on the stretchers those germans never thought that they were going to be saved they couldn't get over it that two english women should have gone through their fire for them as they were being carried through the fire they said we shall never forget what you've done for us god will bless you for it mrs torrance asked them what will you do for us if we are taken prisoner and they said we will do all we can to save you antwerp is said to have fallen antwerp is said to be holding its own well footnote antwerp had surrendered on friday the ninth all evening the watching taube had been hanging over ghent mrs torrance and janet have gone back with the ambulance to mele night sat up all night with mr blank there is one night nurse for all the wards on this floor 
and she has a serious case to watch in another room but i can call her if i want help and there is the chemist who sleeps in the room next door who will come if i go in and wake him up and there are our own four doctors upstairs and the infirmiers it ought to be all right as a matter of fact it was the most terrible night i have ever spent in my life and i have lived through a good many terrible nights in sick rooms but no amount of amateur nursing can take the place of training or of the self-confidence of knowing you are trained and even if you are trained no amount of medical nursing will prepare you for a bad surgical case to begin with i had never nursed a patient so tall and heavy that i couldn't lift him by sheer strength and a sort of amateur knack and though in theory it was reassuring to know that you could call the night nurse and the chemist and the four doctors and the infirmiers in practice it didn't work out quite so easily as it sounded when the night nurse came she couldn't lift any more than i could and she had a greater command of discouraging criticism than of useful practical suggestion and the chemist knew no more about lifting than the night nurse luckily none of us pretended for an instant that we knew when i had called up two of our hard-worked surgeons each once out of his bed i had some scruples about waking them again and it took four belgian infirmiers to do in five minutes what one surgeon could do in as many seconds and when the chemist went to look for the infirmiers he was gone for ages he must have had to round them up from every floor in the hospital whenever any of them went to look for anything it took them ages it was as if for every article needed in the wards of that hospital there was a separate and inaccessible central depot at one moment a small pillow had to be placed in the hollow of my patient's back if he was to be kept in that position on which i had been told his life depended when i sent the night nurse to look for something that would serve she was gone a quarter of an hour in which i realized that my case was not the only case in the hospital for a quarter of an hour i had to kneel by his bed with my two arms thrust together under the hollow of his back supporting it i had nothing at hand that was small enough or firm enough but my arms that night i would have given everything i possessed and everything i have ever done to have been a trained nurse to make matters worse i had an atrocious cough acquired at the hotel de la poste the chemist had made up some medicine for it but the poor busy dispensary clerk had forgotten to send it to my room i had to stop it by an expenditure of will when i wanted every atom of will to keep my patient quiet and send him to sleep if possible without his morphia piqûres he is only to have one if he is restless or in pain and to-night he wanted more than ever to talk when he woke and his conversation in the night is even more lacerating than his conversation in the day for all the time often in pain always in extreme discomfort he is thinking of other people first of all he asked me if i had any books and i thought that he wanted me to read to him i told him i was afraid he mustn't be read to he must go to sleep and he said i mean for you to read yourself to pass the time he is afraid that i shall be bored by sitting up with him that i shall tire myself that i shall make my cough worse he asked me if i think he will ever be well enough to play games that is what he has always wanted to do most and then he begins to tell me about his mother he tells me things that i have no right to put down here there is nothing that i can do for him but to will and i will hard or i pray i don't know which it is your acutest willing and your intensest prayer are indistinguishable and it seems to work 
I will, or I pray, that he shall lie still without morphia, and that he shall have no pain. And he lies still without pain. I will, or I pray, that he shall sleep without morphia. And he sleeps. I think that in spite of his extreme discomfort, he must have slept the best part of the night. And because it seems to work, I will, or I pray, that he shall get well. There are many things that obstruct this process as fast as it is begun. Your sensation of sight and touch, the swarms and streams of images that your brain throws out, and the crushing obsession of your fear. This last is like a dead weight that you hold off with your arms stretched out. Your arms sink and drop under it perpetually and have to be raised again. At last the weight goes, and the sensations go, and the swarms and streams of images go, and there is nothing before you and around you but a clear blank darkness where your will vibrates. Only one avenue of sense is left open. You are lost to the very memories of touch and sight but you are intensely conscious of every sound from the bed, every movement of the sleeper, and while one half of you only lives in that pure and effortless vibration, the other half is aware of the least change in the rhythm of his breathing. It is by this rhythm that I can tell whether he is asleep or awake. This rhythm of his breathing and the rhythm of his sleeping and his waking measure out the night for me. It goes like one hour." And yet I have spent months of nights watching in this room. Its blonde walls are as familiar to me as the walls of rooms where I have lived a long time. I know with a profound and intimate knowledge every crinkle in the red shade of the electric bulb that hangs on the inner wall between the two beds. The shape and position of every object on the night table in the little white tiled dressing room. I know every trick of the inner and outer doors leading to the corridor and the long grey lane of the corridor, and the room that I must go through to find ice, and the face of the little ward-maid who sleeps there, who wants to get up and break the ice for me every time. I have known the little ward-maid all my life. I have known the night-nurse all my life, with her white face and sharp black eyes, and all my life I have not cared for her. All my life I have known and cared only for the wounded man on the bed." I have known every sound of his voice and every line of his face and hands, the face and hands that he asks me to wash over and over again if I don't mind, and the strong springing of his dark hair from his forehead and every little feathery tuft of beard on his chin. And I have known no other measure of time than the rhythm of his breathing, no mark or sign of time than the black crescent of his eyelashes when the lids are closed and the curling blue of his eyes when they open. His eyes always smile as they open, as if they apologize for waking when he knows that I want him to sleep. And I have known these things so long that each one of them is already like a separate wound in my memory. Footnote. Even now, when I am asked if I did any nursing when I was in Belgium, I have to think before I answer. Only for one morning and one night. It would still be much truer to say I was nursing all the time. He sums up for me all the heroism and the agony and waste of the defense of Antwerp, all the heroism and agony and waste of war. About midnight he wakes and tells me he has had a jolly dream. He dreamed that he was running in a field in England, running in a big race, that he led the race and won it. One bad symptom is disappearing. Towards dawn it has almost gone. He really does seem stronger. He has had no return of pain or restlessness. 
but he was to have a morphia piqûre at five o'clock and they have given it to him to make sure eight a m the night has not been so terrible after all it has gone like an hour and i have left him sleeping i am not in the least bit tired i never felt drowsy once and my cough has nearly gone antwerp has fallen taube over ghent in the night six doctors have seen mr blank they all say he is ever so much better they even say he may live that he has a good chance dr wilson is taking mr foster to england this morning went back to the hotel cecil to sleep for an hour or two an enormous oval table-top is leaning flat against the wall but by no possibility can it be set up still the landlord said he would find a table and he has found one went back to the flandria for lunch in the mess-room janet tells me that mr blank's case has been taken out of my hands i am not to try to do any more nursing little janet looks as if she were trying to soften a blow but it isn't a blow far from it it is the end of an intolerable responsibility the commandant and the chaplain started about nine or ten this morning for mele and are not back yet we expect that we may have to clear out of ghent before to-morrow mr riley mrs lambert and janet have gone in the second car to mele i waited in all afternoon on the chance of being taken when the commandant comes and goes out again End of part 14. Recording by Expatriate in Bangor, Maine.